Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 42. A quick reminder before we get started that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. We are excited to be joined today by anti-diet registered dietitian Christy Harrison. She is the host of the phenomenal Food Psych podcast and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet. Through her writing, podcasting, and clinical work, Christy helps people make peace with food and reclaim the time and energy they lost to what she calls the life thief, that is diet culture. I've been a huge fan of Food Psych, the podcast, for years. I also worked with Christy prior to really finding out that she did Food Psych um, in more of my private practice setting, and I'm just so inspired by Christy's commitment to ending weight stigma and fighting diet culture every single week. She's a true crusader and has been so helpful in my work with clients. Oh, me too. I think I first learned about her podcast from you, Leslie. And I think ever since I learned about it, I try to listen every week and I recommend it to my clients all the time. I do too. All the time. Um, It's just such a wonderful, wonderful support for my clients. Some of my clients, it's truly been transformative for them to have the community that Christy Harrison's Food Side podcast has created um, that they can just tune in and listen to every week. A really kind of health at every size, anti-diet, activist place that really fuels them to keep doing the work that they really need to be doing. Completely. And it's actually very helpful because those of my clients that have embraced it, they feel like they get this extra support in between sessions. And really, there's something about the way she speaks to just to people that I think helps start to change the paradigm or just change the way we look at these things. And I think as it's sort of similar to what brought us to podcasting. It's a completely different platform and you can reach people in in almost an even more personal colloquial way. Uh, So anyway, she's a real pioneer in this anti-diet space and has inspired so many of us to embrace a social justice lens in our work. And I loved this conversation we had with Christy. We asked her to break down some really important terms like thin privilege and get to the bottom of what anti-diet even means. We also pushed for a little sneak peek of her new book, which I'm really excited. I've pre-ordered it, and it's just it's in my Amazon. I can see when it's coming. It's coming to me, hopefully, on December 24th. But hopefully, you will be inspired to perhaps check out her book. 
but she's given you a little bit of a sneak peek of that and learned a lot about what the research says about why, despite the knowledge that diets don't work, we all still remain so darn committed to the pursuit of weight loss. Ah, it drives me crazy every time I say it. I know. Me too. And Christy too. But it's a truly great conversation. So let's get to it. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. We're so excited for you to be here and for you to talk to our listeners. Can you tell them who you are and what brought you to your work as a dietitian, an author, and a podcaster? Sure, yeah. So I'm Christy Harrison. I am an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor and author of the forthcoming book as we're recording this, uh, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And I came to this work in sort of a winding way, as many of us do. Um, I started my career as a journalist. I went, you know, graduated from college in 2003, went straight into journalism, and was also struggling in my own relationship with food at the time. I had seriously disordered eating that I had picked up in my junior year of college and really quickly spiraled into a dis- you know an eating disorder that went undiagnosed um, and sort of back and forth from disordered eating to eating disorder over the years. And so when I was starting my career as a journalist and you know I kind of always knew I wanted to write, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist or an author, have something to do with words and communication, but I didn't really know what specifically I wanted to cover. And journalism, you kind of have to have a beat. You have to choose an area of expertise. And so because I was so obsessed with food, because I wasn't eating enough food, I ended up gravitating towards writing about food, writing about nutrition, which I was also obsessed with and health in general because I was having a lot of health problems caused by my restrictive and disordered eating and my overexercise, which I didn't recognize at the time being caused by those things. I was you know, obsessed with the idea that maybe gluten was the problem or some other type of food that I was eating. I had, I, I still have you know, chronic illnesses as well that were getting diagnosed around that time. So I was just like very much down this rabbit hole of food, nutrition, and health. And so started my career as a journalist focusing on those things. And over the years, you know, deepened that beat, my expertise in those areas. And then in 2009, I was actually working at a food magazine, Gourmet, which had been around for 70 plus years at the time. It was a very venerable food magazine. But in 2009, there were rumblings, actually 2008, 2009, there started to be rumblings that there was going to be big layoffs or something was going to happen to the magazine. And so I ended up deciding to go back to school for public health and nutrition master's degree and also to get my registered dietitian license. And I, you know, pursued that path because I was interested in quote unquote, helping people be healthy. You know, I didn't really understand at the time that so much of my quote unquote healthy eating was really disordered and problematic. And what, you know, fell under what I would now call the wellness diet was very orthorexic, sort of obsessive way of thinking about food and health. But I was, you know, very rewarded for that way of thinking. I got lots of stories and assigned lots of stories and edited lots of interesting pieces about food and nutrition from that perspective. I talked to Michael Pollan. I talked to David Kessler. I interviewed all these people who are kind of big names in that movement at the time and really wanted to kind of be the next Michael Pollan. (laughs) That was my idea and going back to school. 
and also work with individuals and help, quote unquote, help people be healthy. And so I went to NYU. I enrolled in their master's of public health nutrition with a nutrition concentration and started my registered dietitian training as well. And somewhere along the way, it wasn't in my classes, but it was, you know, in the first two semesters of my of school, I actually decided to start writing a book and never ended up finishing even the book proposal. But in researching that book, which was on the, uh, it was supposed to be a cultural history of emotional eating, because I was really interested in emotional eating. I identified as an emotional eater at the time. And from my work at Gourmet had been really interested in like food culture and people's relationships with food and wasn't really getting a lot of that kind of interest and creative energy fulfilled and my schooling to be a dietitian and to get my master's. So I decided to embark on this project on the side and had an agent interested and like, you know, it was just coming off of this sort of high profile work at Gourmet and everybody was interested in like what all the editors were going to be doing after the magazine folded. So I was like pursuing this idea of this book and I just couldn't get it. I, I just couldn't like nail it down what the book was going to be and how I was going to tell the story and like what the story even was. And I was just going down this rabbit hole of research. And I think the reason that I was having such a hard time with it is because I was coming up against this paradigm shift that I now see that I'm on the other side of, you know, as 10 years later, a health at every size and intuitive eating professional that's not what we get trained in in school. That's not the norm in healthcare. That's not the norm in food and nutrition journalism. And so I was just having a really hard time kind of getting my mind around these concepts that I was coming across in my research, like intuitive eating, like the fact that dieting was actually responsible for so-called emotional eating, not you know, emotions necessarily, that it that was uh, situations of deprivation that people tended to have this, this emotional eating response. And so I was getting sort of immersed in all this research that was really interesting and fascinating to me, but just was like not computing in my mind <laughs> at the time. Uh, so, you know, I kind of ended up abandoning that book proposal, but I decided to take some of the ideas from it and start my podcast because I was I was interested in still exploring those ideas and maybe like talking through and fleshing out what they were in more interview style, you know, sort of conversational way um, and talking to people about their relationships with food. And also at the time when I kind of abandoned that book proposal, I happened to be working at a city agency, the, the city department of health, where I was working on nutrition policy initiatives. And that was, you know, very sort of not creative. It was a different part of my brain that I was using. It was not scratching that creative itch that I I liked to scratch as a journalist. And so, you know, I started to become interested in doing something more creative, more journalistic. I was listening to lots of podcasts at the time. And so I was like, you know, I have interviewing skills as a journalist. I'm really interested in this medium. I've never explored this medium. I've always been more focused on the written word. And I'd like to shore up my skills in speaking as well. And so I decided to start the podcast. You know, it's always been called Food Psych, but at first it was just about food and psychology, people's relationships with food, the connections that we have with food, the sort of psychological aspects of quote unquote health and nutrition as, as I was framing it at the time. And so, you know, my early episodes, I talked with people about disordered eating. I talked with people about, I actually revealed my own disordered eating publicly for the first time. And at that point, it was really a history of disordered eating that I wasn't, uh, didn't have like a framework for. And so I was kind of like, ah, I don't know, I'm kind of still an emotional eater, but, you know, I was really 
really, really had a hard time, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. And so it was kind of like publicly working through this history that I had of, of disordered eating. And then through that process, I started actually working in the eating disorder field. I decided to specialize in that in my dietetics practice when I launched my private practice. And I started going to lots of trainings and conferences and just like absorbing all the information and education I could get my hands on about, you know, disordered eating and eating disorders. And through that, I was exposed to health at every size and intuitive eating as sort of the gold standard for recovery. You know, a lot of scientific evidence and and conferences and people presenting on these ideas really, really frame this as, you know, when, when we're looking to help people fully recover from disordered eating and eating disorders, we need to move them into this framework of intuitive eating and health at every size where their eating and health habits are totally divorced from weight, where we're not pushing weight loss on people and telling them that they need to lose weight in order to be healthy. Because in fact, there's all this research showing that weight is not a determinant of health and you know, certainly not in the way that we think it is. Like higher weight might be correlated, yes, with certain uh, adverse health outcomes, but it's not the cause. And in fact, there's lots of other things that seem more likely to be the cause, like weight stigma and weight cycling, which are both much more common in people in larger bodies. And so I started just getting immersed in this research and this evidence, and it just blew my mind. And I was also like seeing a lot of contradictions to that in the the actual practice that I was doing when I was working in and coordinating care with eating disorder treatment centers. I would hear people, I'd hear clinicians, you know, say things about clients that I was like, that doesn't really sound health at every size, right? That doesn't really sound in line with the ultimate goal of intuitive eating. And so I got curious and I also got kind of frustrated and decided that I wanted to focus my podcast on health at every size and intuitive eating to help continue my own education and interest in these areas, but also to bring this these concepts to a wider audience, including the general public, but also fellow clinicians as well, and wanted to spread that that message. So that's kind of how I got to where I am today with the podcast focusing on all of that and, you know, my work as a writer and now as an author, um, focusing on that as well. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear the story and how your work and you have evolved. And <laughs> I guess one of the things and it's it's backtracking a little bit because a, a lot of the words that you use on the podcast and even just now are, I think have become sort of buzzwords in this sort of sphere of the anti-diet body positive haze space that <laughs> Leslie and I are certainly very entrenched in. But we wanted to take an opportunity to just sort of use you as a like human glossary for a moment <laughs> for our listeners who may be a little bit newer to this world. And so one of the things I know uh, we're excited about is that you wrote this forthcoming book called Anti-Diet, and you refer to yourself as an anti-diet dietitian, and we see this a lot more and more people kind of rebranding themselves as anti-diet dietitians. So we'd like to just start with, could you explain what that means? What does anti-diet mean, and how is that different from a regular dietitian? Could you just give us a little 411? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I think... Anti-diet is 
it's an important term to me for a lot of reasons. I think one one thing that I see in terms of defining anti-diet is a lot of people will say they're anti-diet, right? A lot of even diets will say they're anti-diet, you know, or say this isn't a diet, it's a lifestyle change, right? And diets don't want to say they're diets in this day and age. And we can talk a little more about that later. But, you know, that's kind of a, a trend and a hallmark of diet culture in the 21st century. So, you know, I think some people define anti-diet just to mean like anti-fad diet, like, you know, anti this quacky doctor's five-step weight loss plan or, you know, fat loss detox from some Instagram guru or whatever. And, you know, that isn't really the whole picture. That certainly is, you know, those things are part of the problem. They're just not the whole problem. And really what I see is the whole problem is this concept of diet culture. And so, you know, that's really what my book and my work recently really focuses on is diet culture, which is this system of beliefs that includes not just quacky fad diets and quote unquote lifestyle changes, you know, diets masquerading as lifestyle changes, but also just all of these ways of thinking and treating bodies and treating food that are so embedded in our society. And so it's really this system of beliefs, a sort of overarching system of values that is endemic to our culture. And that includes, you know, worshiping thinness and equating it to health and moral virtue. And so that's manifest in so many different ways. But what it leads to is, you know, people really spending so much time thinking they're irreparably broken, that they're damaged because they can't look like this impossibly thin ideal or they can't have their health match up with this supposed ideal of health. The system of beliefs also promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, health status or moral status, which means that people feel really compelled to spend all this time, this money, this energy, trying to shrink their body, trying to meet up with that ideal in order to gain respect, success, you know, status in society, even though the research is really clear that almost no one can sustain intentional weight loss for more than a few years and diets really, you know, any form of intentional weight loss. I use, use diets as sort of a blanket term, but, you know, lifestyle changes, plans, protocols, templates, resets, whatever you want to call them don't work long term. And so, you know, people end up kind of spinning their wheels for years trying to attain this higher status that's promised to them through dieting, through weight loss, through quote unquote perfect eating and just end up losing untold amounts of time, money and energy. The system of beliefs that is diet culture also demonizes certain foods while elevating others. And that's a really important part of it, especially in the 21st century. I think that some of the overt weight focus has been tamped down, although it's still very much there. It's just more under the surface. But this demonizing certain foods and elevating others, you know, framing certain foods as clean and others as dirty or whole versus processed or healthy versus unhealthy, these sort of dichotomies in this black and white way of thinking about food really forces people to be so hypervigilant about their eating, guilty when they're making certain choices, virtuous when they're making others, um, ashamed of, of their food choices, wanting to eat a certain way in front of other people, and ultimately just completely distracted from pleasure in food, from connection and spontaneity with food, and from, you know, their larger purpose and their power in the world that comes from, you know, having lots of freedom not to think about food and to be able to devote your life to other things. And so ultimately, this 
this system of beliefs that is diet culture is a system of oppression. It oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health, which means that people experience internalized and also external stigma and shame for their body size, for their food choices, and especially for people in larger bodies and, you know, the very highest end of the body size spectrum, I think, bears the brunt of this. But we see internalized weight stigma, you know, not the necessarily other people bullying you and shaming you, but just internalized, you know, bullying and shaming of yourself, we see that even in people in very small bodies. And so across the weight spectrum, we really have this problem with internalized weight stigma, internalized shame about food, food phobia, fat phobia that, you know, takes people, again, away from the things that they could really be investing their time in, like, you know, changing the world or having a fulfilling life and pursuing their pleasure, pursuing their purpose in the world. Yeah, that's one of the things that we kind of, our mission here at Full Bloom Project is to if possible, allow kids to fully bloom totally unencumbered by all of these things that you just discussed. And we know it's a hard mission to accomplish, but it's, it's so important. I I really relate to the fact that it is oppression. You know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. there's a huge Mm -hmm. amount of energy and ideas and creativity being oppressed and, and held down right now because of our diet culture. And on the other side of kind of this oppression is the privilege, right? The other mm-hmm. side of that is kind of the privilege of not being oppressed potentially. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit, because you talk about this a lot on your podcast, if you can talk to our listeners about thin privilege, can you help them understand what this is? How do we know if we have it? Can you have thin privilege and still suffer from body shaming mm-hmm. and weight stigma? Absolutely. Yeah. So you definitely can have thin privilege and still suffer. And it doesn't, you know, having thin privilege doesn't mean you've never had any body image insecurities, any disordered eating, any struggles in your relationship with your body size or shape. You know, all of those things are common, like I said, really across the weight spectrum. Virgie Tovar, who's a great, you know, activist and author in this area, has a really helpful way of sort of thinking about fat phobia. And she calls it the three different levels of fat phobia. There's the intrapersonal, which is within person levels of fat phobia. That's like the internalized fat phobia that I was talking about, the interpersonal level, which is between people. And so that's, you know, someone making fun of you for your size or someone telling you you should be eating differently or you should lose weight. And then the institutional, which is the larger cultural stigma that uh, people face because of their body size. And so those first two levels, interpersonal and intrapersonal, can happen to people all across the spectrum. The intrapersonal within person level is like, all of us basically in this culture, right? Unless we've done a lot of work to overcome those internalized fat phobic beliefs. Um, the interpersonal between people levels of, of fat phobia really is most common in people who are in larger bodies, but you know, people in smaller bodies can experience that too if they're bullied for their size or shape without actually being larger. You know, sometimes we see this with like a parent has disordered eating themselves and views their child's body as unacceptably large and so puts that sort of shame on the child when in reality that child is not actually larger bodied but they grow up with a lot of the same 
trauma and internalized weight stigma that someone in a larger body can grow up with in this culture. And then the institutional level of fat phobia is really one that's exclusively reserved for people in larger bodies. And so, you know, that looks like not being able to fit into clothes and in mainstream clothing stores, um, not being able to fit into an airplane seat and having to buy a second seat, basically spending double to travel anywhere than your thinner bodied counterparts would. Although Southwest Airlines, pro tip, if anyone's in this boat, has a policy called the passenger of size policy that allows a passenger of size to to get a second seat for free. So that's really cool. But, you know, they can't just kind of waltz into any major airline that they want to want to fly on and be assured of that, right? If you're in a larger body or you can't go to a booth at a restaurant and and fit in or maybe you're you're going to the doctor for um a colleague of mine named Reagan Chastain like has this this example where she went to the doctor for strep throat. She's in a larger body and she was told to lose weight at this appointment for strep throat as though that was going to cure her acute illness. And fortunately, she was able to get a throat swab and a diagnosis and a prescription for antibiotics ultimately. But at first, the doctor was going to try to send her off with this weight loss prescription and not treat the condition she actually had. And so that's it's horrible. Yeah, it's it like, happens all like, the time. It happens you know? all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yep. And so that's the institutional fat phobia. That's the level, you know, that's really the level that this privilege and oppression kind of operates on is, you know, thin privilege is being able to go to the doctor for strep throat and just get treated for strep throat and not get a lecture about your weight, not get misdiagnosed, you know, go to the doctor for shortness of breath and get a CAT scan of your lungs, maybe, or some, you know, asthma treatment or whatever it may be, rather than being told to lose weight. And then as a story that I tell in the book, you know, five years later, this woman who goes in for shortness of breath multiple times and is told to lose weight actually ends up having lung cancer. And it's so advanced by the time she gets diagnosed that she has to have her lung removed, one of her lungs removed. And, you know, so that that's what we're talking about with privilege versus oppression at this level. You know, there, so there's, you know, lots of people, myself included, have thin privilege and still have struggled in their eating, you know, still have had eating disorders and disordered eating, still have had body shame, body image issues. And yet I will never face and have never faced that kind of stigma where, you know, I go to the doctor for something and I'm told this completely non-evidence-based way of supposedly managing it because we know that diets don't work in the long term, intentional weight loss doesn't work for, you know, any more than a tiny percentage of people, two to five percent somewhere in there. And so people in larger bodies are being given prescriptions for something that does not work instead of being given evidence-based medicine that does. So that's those are some examples of of thin privilege and, you know, oppression that show up in the world. Yeah. No. No, I I know. I I get it's, I think we're sitting here our blood is boiling. It's so <laughs> enraging, but I I appreciate you helping us understand cuz as I'd like to be able to talk more about that on the podcast and it's helpful to just have a foundation to understand just the system that it lies in. Um, mm -hmm. So the last glossary request, we think you do an amazing job of calling out the many sneaky manifestations of diet culture. We talk a lot about that here. We particularly love the term you use, the wellness diet. And just wondering um, how you're defining that these days and how people can tell if they are subscribing to it. 
Mm, yes, a good question. So the wellness diet is my term for this sneaky, modern manifestation of diet culture that we see really in the 21st century. And that guise of diet culture is supposedly about wellness, right? It pretends that it's all about health and well-being, but it's actually about performing a specific picture of health, right? It's it's performing this rarefied, perfectionistic ultimately discriminatory because it's inaccessible to most people, uh, version of health, idea of what health is supposed to look like. And it's not real. It's not, you know, I call it the wellness diet to, to highlight the fact that it is a diet cloaking itself as wellness, that it's not true wellness, and that it's not going to give people the, you know, glowing health and sort of eternal life that they are being promised, right? And so the wellness diet is not just about weight loss, although weight loss is, you know, thinner bodies are an essential part of its picture of health. And that's something, you know, as I was talking about earlier, that sort of aspect of diet culture that's about weight, the volume is turned down on it in the wellness diet, but it's still very much there when you think about like who gets held up as the picture of wellness, who, you know, who are the Instagram gurus that are preaching their wellness diets and who are the ones that are getting followers and getting, you know, book deals and things like that. It's it's definitely always thin ones, right? And muscular ones, you know, for folks who are masculine, it's like this muscular sort of triangle-shaped body. For folks who are feminine, it's like this hourglass-shaped body, you know, big booty, big boobs, and skinny all the rest of the way with, you know, muscles. And that's the, the kind of picture of quote-unquote wellness that's being held up now. And it's also, you know, the volume, I think, is turned way up on this other aspect of diet culture that is about uh, demonizing some foods and elevating others, right? It's about, you know, having the quote-unquote right foods and eliminating the quote-unquote wrong ones. And elimination diets are, are huge in the wellness diet clean eating, detoxes and cleanses, um, worrying about gluten and dairy and grains and, you know, prescribing, eliminating those things to the general population, not to people with celiac disease or wheat allergy who actually do need to consider removing or, or avoiding gluten. Um, but people, you know, the general population, which is you know, 99% of people actually, 1% of people have celiac disease. And so, you know, this mass hysteria about gluten is just one example of how the wellness diet shows up. Some of, you know, what I touched on earlier about like my own history with going into public health nutrition from this perspective of I'm going to save people and help their health and well-being was coming from this place of Michael Pollan, Marion Nessel, Eric Schlosser, these authors who were really influential around the turn of the millennium, talking about the food system and how we need to eat more sustainably and stop eating so many quote-unquote processed foods. That's actually part of the wellness diet too, because these authors and, and proponents of this way of eating actually tie it to smaller bodies, right? They they make the case that, you know, quote unquote processed foods are the reason that people are in such larger bodies now and that like there's a quote unquote obesity epidemic, which as I talk about in the book, is just not true. This idea of a so-called obesity epidemic was actually trumped up and fomented by the pharmaceutical industry, people with uh, researchers with ties to diet companies and pharmaceutical companies making weight loss drugs. And so it's a it's a myth that we're in a quote-unquote epidemic of larger body size. And I use quotation marks around the term obesity whenever I say it because it's a stigmatizing term and it pathologizes certain body sizes. So that idea of like you know, our food environment is is ruining everything, is making people unhealthy and also making people fat is a hallmark of the wellness diet as well. 
Yes, it's so, like, the wellness aspect of it, I feel like, has made it so much harder to untangle for people. Um, It's just very hard to lay it out as it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things I love about about your work and why I listen to your podcast every single week is because you just are working on this so well, just laying it out, laying it out, laying it out. And sometimes, you know, in the work that I do, I think people know these basics, but they don't. And so I feel Mm -hmm. on this podcast in particular with talking to parents, like I want to make sure they know these things because I can't assume Mm -hmm. they do. And I, in, in my work as a, as a psychotherapist with eating disorders, you know, I can't assume that any of my colleagues and collaborators really are coming from a health at every size place or, or with mm-hmm. the, this knowledge, because it's just so deeply entrenched, particularly in our medical system, which makes me want to ask this question to you and you in particular, because you just did like such a deep dive into the research so that you could write this book is, is my understanding. And I want you to, I want to hear how you break it down for, for our listeners and our parents. You write that 68% of Americans have dieted at some point in their lives but upwards of 90% of people who intentionally lose weight gain it back within five years. And as many as 66% of people who embark on weight loss efforts end up gaining more weight than they lost. We do talk about this on the podcast and about how dieting is clearly ineffective and quite toxic for adults and kids. Um, But even with this knowledge, it just feels every single day that I'm coming up against kind of the obsession with trying it, continuously trying it. And I'm wondering, you know, going just right back into it, right back onto the next version of the wellness way to lose weight or this way to do that. Or um, I'm just wondering what insights did you gain into this question of why are we all still so obsessed with it while writing your book? Yeah, I mean, it is such a good question. And really what I gained, you know, the insight that I gained was just that Diet culture is the reason, basically. Diet culture is the reason we're still so obsessed with it because even though we know, and I actually am looking at across my office, I have a stack of books that I referenced in writing my book. I was going to take a picture of it for an Instagram thing I'm doing for promoting my book. And it's, you know, like this giant stack of books, right, from, you know, the last several decades. Um, So we know we have this information, right? This information is out there. It's in these books. It's in hundreds of articles and interviews and TV things and research papers. Like it's there. The information is there to support an anti-diet path, to support the idea that We really don't have a sustainable way of making more than a tiny fraction of people lose weight and that actually intentional weight loss efforts result in more weight regain over time than a person lost. Like all that information is there. And so why is it that we're still, despite all this information that we're still doing it, it's the culture, right? It's the belief system. And part of that culture is these structures, these industries that are built on top of that belief system, like the weight loss industry, the pharmaceutical industry and its ties to weight loss, like diet food companies, right? Food food companies that sell diet food, weight loss programs and plans and services, 
you know, gyms that exist because people are going to the gym to try to change the size and shape of their body. All of this stuff, all of this machinery of diet culture, I think is what keeps it going, not least of which is the medical industrial complex, right? Doctors, nurses, healthcare providers of all stripes are so caught up in this culture and this way of thinking, partly because they're taught that in school. You know, they're they're not taught to question the conventional wisdom. They're taught like, you know, especially doctors. I've talked to a number of doctors on my podcast and in my life where, you know, they'll openly say like, we didn't get any training on nutrition or we got maybe half a semester on nutrition, but yet we're, we're told like, oh, we'll tell people to lose weight, you know, have, have people go on diets, diet and exercise to lose weight. And so they'll be giving that information out to their patients and doctors have such authority. People believe doctors, right? People are much more likely to take advice from their doctor. And if you challenge advice that comes from a doctor or another healthcare provider, I think it takes people aback, you know? But doctors are people too, as I'm always saying in the podcast. Like doctors grew up in this diet culture like the rest of us. They're steeped in it. They don't get any education that challenges it. They buy and large, really, most doctors I've ever met have been very steeped in this weight normative way of looking at things that ignores all this research that 90, 95, 98% of people who intentionally lose weight gain it back, that weight loss tends to take people in the opposite direction they thought they were going. They end up higher, you know, heavier than they they started out. And that actually that weight cycling process is a risk factor to people's health that is maybe even a greater risk factor than staying and actually seems to be from all the research I've seen is a greater risk factor than staying the same size, even if it's a larger size. You know, doctors just, I think, miss that. And so I think when people, you know, everyday people are going to the doctor and told to lose weight for a particular health condition and then bombarded with images of ultra thin models in the media they consume or the, you know, TV shows they watch and they're being advertised to with pharmaceutical ads that talk about permanent weight loss or bariatric surgery ads that talk about permanent weight loss and, you know, food companies are are putting diet sayings on the front of their packaging and marketing and selling people uh, food based on this idea of quote-unquote wellness or healthy that is now so common in our society. All of that is just so all-consuming, right? And just really takes over people's minds that even this, you know, stack of books that I'm looking at or these articles that have come out challenging it are like a drop in the bucket compared to all of the cultural norms that reinforce people's thinking about food and weight. And so that's why, like, in my book, I really try to look at the culture, the cultural significance, the cultural underpinnings of this thinking about food and bodies and kind of pull back from, you know, saying, like, individual diets are the problem or, you know, even, like, the fashion industry or the weight loss industry is the problem. It's it's all of that and more. It's just so big. And when I think about how much bigger it is than all of us and when I think about that stack of books that's already been written and published, I sometimes get really sad and I sometimes think, like, is what I'm doing going to have any effect? But I do hear from so many people who for whom my work and the work of people, you know, all of the activists and the authors that came before me that have been doing this work, that paved the way for me to do this work, the effects that that work has had on people's lives and that it truly does change people's lives and the way that they raise their kids and the way that maybe the next generation is going to approach these things that I just have to keep going. Because I feel like, you know, if it's even just a few people that can carry this torch into the next generation, 
that's okay. You know, I think this is, we're up against a huge oppressive system. We're up against this Goliath that is diet culture. And it's going to take probably many, many Davids with our little slingshots (laughs) (laughs) over many generations to bring it down. But I think we need to keep at it. Well, we're with you for sure. (laughs) We'll we'll carry a little torches too. You know, before we move to our last question, I just, I would love to take advantage of how much accurate nutritional wisdom you have as a registered anti-diet dietitian, just to help us with a follow-up question. We had Marcy Evans on our show earlier this season. We know you're quite familiar with her. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about kids and gut health, this gut health buzzword, right? And I, I personally would love to take this one step further because gut health gets talked about so much as it pertains to autoimmune disease. And mm-hmm. I know you've disclosed that you have Hashimoto's and I have it as well. And it seems that a lot of kind of women our age and in particular young moms I meet, they say they have it too. So why mm-hmm. that is, I don't know. That's probably another topic for another podcast. But I feel like it's very much part of our culture for um these types of women to start looking to quote wellness to treat something like their thyroid dysfunction. You hear a lot about cutting gluten and dairy. I mean, you were sort of referencing this earlier. And I would love for you just to take a minute to school us and our listeners (laughs) in the facts and fictions here. Like what does the science actually say? Because people are looking for relief and a lot of people are being told, well, the relief is all in the food. And you know, people are actually struggling. So with compassion for them, I just would love to hear you give us some real information that we could maybe trust. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this has been such an area of passion and interest of mine because I am so science-minded and have this nutrition background. And I also have Hashimoto's and also struggled for many years to figure out what was going on and to feel better. And I know so many of my clients and listeners and people I know do as well. It's it's really a common disease and, you know, autoimmune diseases in general are so common these days. And I think a lot of people have have serious struggles that they are looking for relief for and not finding them immediately in Western medicine. And so can sort of start to feel frustrated by that and look to these alternative treatments for relief. And that happened to me, you know, back in 2003, 2004, when I was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I was still having, I I was missing my period. I was having fatigue and brain fog and dry hair and skin and all these things that seem to be related maybe to the disorder, but also, you know, turns out later on, I, I was able to piece together that they were being caused by my dieting, my disordered eating, my overexercise, because I was already on medication for the Hashimoto's and the le- my levels were in the normal range. So, you know, it was um, extremely frustrating to still be having these symptoms and doctors couldn't explain it. And so I ended up going down this rabbit hole of cutting out gluten, doing ever stricter versions of the gluten-free diet over the years too, and actually writing about them as a journalist. And so I kind of helped fan the flames of this emerging gluten-free trend back then. And then years later, you know, in private practice as a dietitian specializing in disordered eating was seeing a lot of people with autoimmune diseases too, and especially Hashimoto's, you know, getting caught up in this idea that you have to cut out gluten, you have to cut out dairy. And some about that just didn't sit right with me because of my own history with this stuff because 
honestly, it just made me feel worse. It never helped me to eliminate foods. It, it, you know, I would think it was for a little bit and then I would sort of maybe feel better for a little while and then start to question it and be like, I don't know. I can't, I'm not really sure if I can tell a difference actually, but I had already told everyone in my life that I was cutting out these foods. And so I felt like I had to keep it up because it was such a, an effort even just to kind of switch over all my food in the pantry and ingredients that I had and people were buying special food for me and stuff. So I kind of felt like I had to keep doing it, but it didn't actually bring me any relief. And it wasn't until I stopped the disordered eating until I actually got recovery from that and healing from that, that I stopped having those issues and was seeing a lot of this in my clients as well, who had disordered eating, that a lot of the issues they blamed on particular foods would end up dissipating or disappearing when they were able to um, stop the disordered eating and that, you know, they weren't actually sensitive to foods they thought they were sensitive to. And so I decided to do a deep dive into the science and, you know, PubMed for anyone who is listening, who's a, a science and research geek like I am, you know, is, is kind of the repository for all scientific research that's published in any sort of mainstream journal, even some non-mainstream journals. It's the home for everything scientific. And so I did a PubMed search on gluten, dairy, Hashimoto's, autoimmune disorders. I like deep dived into all of it. There were hundreds of papers that I found. And it was really interesting. What I found in this research was that with Hashimoto's specifically, and even to a very large extent with autoimmune diseases in general, the only research I found showing any benefit of a gluten-free diet for Hashimoto's was in people who had celiac disease. And that makes complete sense because when you have celiac disease, you actually have a genetic mutation. This affects less than 1% or maybe up to 1% of the population. So very small number of people. But it, uh, this genetic mutation makes people unable to process gluten and makes the body think that gluten is a foreign invader and so attacks the small intestine in the presence of gluten. And that can have lots of systemic health effects that include things like diarrhea and constipation and uh, digestive disorders, but also things like foggy mind, dry skin, um, difficulty concentrating, you know, lots of different things that, that are very nebulous sort of symptoms. So it's really interesting, to, though, to think about the fact that doctors and alternative healthcare professionals and, you know, people in the sort of coaching space are often recommending, I see it so often, that they recommend a gluten-free diet to someone with Hashimoto's, not realizing that all the research that we have to date on gluten and Hashimoto's is only in people who also have celiac disease who should be avoiding gluten anyway, right, for, for well-being. They, they need to avoid gluten. I don't want to say should, actually, but need to avoid gluten anyway for their well-being. And, of course, other autoimmune conditions that they have would get exacerbated in the presence of gluten, and so they would experience relief from their Hashimoto's in the absence of gluten. That is very understandable in someone with celiac disease. But in the general population, we just don't have any evidence showing that going gluten-free for a general person with Hashimoto's like me or you, Zoe, like that that would have any effect. And I actually delved further into like the autoimmune disease literature in general to see if, you know, gluten specifically um, had any research there. And what I found was, you know, for the, the most part, like in dozens or hundreds of studies that I saw, again, it was only in people with celiac disease where there was a demonstrated benefit of going gluten-free. Again, makes total sense. There was one study 
about uh, you know self-reported gluten-free diet among people with inflammatory bowel disease, which is a kind of autoimmune disease, showing that they they self-reported symptom relief when they were gluten-free. Now, self-report and and studies that are not randomized controlled trials are really problematic, especially with regard to digestive disorders and other conditions around food and symptoms thought to be related to food, because there's something called the nocebo effect which is very strong in food and nutrition research. And the nocebo effect is basically the opposite of the placebo effect. So the placebo effect is, you know, you think something is going to help you, and so it does, even if the substance itself is actually inert and doesn't have any benefit. And the nocebo effect is you think something is going to hurt you, and so it does, even if the substance itself is inert and doesn't have any harm associated with it. So with, you know, gluten-free diets in particular, because diet culture is so anti-gluten, because the wellness diet has been beating this drum of gluten-free diets for the general population since the early 2000s, I think we're in a place now where people are so susceptible to the nocebo effect with gluten that it results in situations like like I had where I was like, I think I feel better at first. You know, there was this, this sense of thinking I had found some relief. And I have seen a number of clients who've had extreme um, nocebo effects when they cut out a particular food because the belief is so strong that the food is hurting them because of the disordered thinking about food in general, because of this diet culture, wellness diet belief system that they're already holding, that they think the food is is bad. It's the emperor's new clothes. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, we, we could talk to you probably for the next hour, but our parents are busy and on the go. So Leslie, do you want to <laughs> Ask Christy the final question. Yeah, I mean, we haven't asked you to orient your thinking to parents specifically, so I think this is the best time to do that and to ask you if each parent who's listening to you today took away and did one thing on the regular, what is the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom unencumbered by diet culture? Mm, such a good question. I mean, I think it's it's a big one, but the one thing I would recommend is allowing your child to hold on to their intuitive eating skills that they're born with and fight back against diet culture and these fat phobic and food phobic beliefs that our culture wants to instill in them and not put those beliefs on your child. So allowing your child to eat according to hunger and fullness and satisfaction, choose foods that bring them pleasure, don't police their food, don't ban sugar at home, you know, don't ban particular foods. Even if you yourself are struggling with diet culture and the wellness diet, which is so understandable because millions of us do and, you know, the vast majority of women do really, you know, but even if you yourself are struggling with these issues, just don't put any of that on your kid and do your best to help your kid stay intuitive with food, stay joyful about food, and not think that much about food ultimately so they can focus on being a kid, allow them to think about play dates and coloring and running around outside and all of the fun things that kids get to do, not calories and numbers and which foods are good and bad. Don't put that information into their, into their little minds because they have so many better things to be thinking about and doing with their time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christy, for joining us. And we hope all of our listeners will jump over to listen to your podcast, too, because you have so much more to say that we didn't get to. (laughs) And also that they'll uh, pick up a copy of your book or pre-order your book, Anti-Diet. We'll make sure to include all the info um, on our show notes. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. 
So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.